0: Hello, David Oakes here. We have a very topical and at times very silly episode for you this week. Last week, hungry Americans sat down, thanked each other and devoured approximately 52 million turkeys. This week, 66 million British citizens head to the polls to elect their next government. What possible reason could I have for saying all of this? Is it that I think we should feed our electorate to the Americans, reduce the British population to a manageable 14 million, whilst also solving the issue of US battery turkey farming? Or that we've got an episode of Trees A Crowd that will be focused upon birds and politics, emphasis on the birds? Well, you will find out in about 12 and a half seconds. Sit down, welcome. This is Trees A Crowd. In the depth of the forest and all the world, the pride of the greenwood there. O his branches, the ivy her mantle through when the forest boughs were bare. Oh, the oak and the ivy. Oh, the oak and the ivy. Oh. Hello, I'm David Oakes, and welcome to Trees a Crowd. This is a podcast for those of you who, like me, think our natural world is incredible, including those with the political power enshrined to protect the flower. I get to talk with people. That's the worst one I've ever written. Everyone gets a bad pun introduction, and that's particularly ridiculous. It, it makes you sound like a hippie from the Flower get-go. power, yes. <laughs> if only bell-bottoms could save the world. Well, you are wearing some wonderful bell-bottoms. <laughs> no one will ever know. Um, are, are you a hippie? Um, I sometimes describe myself a hippie as a sort of proxy for...
1: for nature lover Uh but if folk could see me I'm in my tie and my sensible hairdo so you are the most
0: formally dressed person I've ever interviewed. Ah. Uh, I however have been sitting in the rain by the Serpentine for the last hour and a half so I'm probably the scrubbiest I've ever looked for one of these. Sog looks good on you. Thank you very much. Um, I am where are we it is Thursday in mid October of 2019. Uh, We started this week by having Boris Johnson's what was supposed to be his probably second queen speech turned out to be his first queen speech could possibly be the first of two queen speeches could almost more than likely be his final queen speech. Anyway, the queen said some very interesting things in terms of a new environmental, uh, governmental policy. So I'm here talking to someone who knows hopefully more about that than I do. So I'm here with Dr. Richard Benwell, uh, Richard is the chief executive of England's largest environmental coalition. Uh, Previously, he was policy advisor to the secretary of state at DEFRA, working on the environment bill, the agriculture bill, the fisheries bill. He's worked for the RSPB, for the Wildfowl and Wetland Trust, and will next be seen standing for office as the Liberal Democrat parliamentary candidate for wantage. Richard, hello and welcome to Trees of Crowd.
1: Hello, thank you for having me.
0: So I have got a million questions about the state of the world and in particular of this country but let's not start with that let's let's start in the nice easy place where did you grow up where's home birmingham (laughs) finest city in the country well yes undoubtedly it's glorious Um, (laughs) with more canals than venice that is the only fact that most folk have about birmingham and it's the only fact that most birmingham people tell tell the world there you go can you give us another environmental waterways based fact about birmingham
1: I saw my first water rail in Birmingham, which is a, a lovely a, a lovely bird. It's got sort of a long red bill and a stripy belly and it famously makes grunty noises like a pig.
0: Would you like to give a rendition?
1: <laughs> I don't feel obliged <laughs> to do that. Uh, in, in my early days of working with the RSPB, I saw uh, Fit to try to engage with an MP by, by emulating the sound of screeching swifts uh, as the nature reserve. And, Did that uh, work? Um, well, she liked it, but my <laughs> boss uh, sort of took me aside and said, Richard, never don't, do that don't again. Don't squawk at the MPs. Uh, so I'll, I'll hold off the, uh, the the pig water rail noises, if you'll forgive me.
0: I, I completely understandable. Do you think more people should approach uh, current uh, government ministers using the noises of animals?
1: <laughs> I think uh, reaching out to ministers and parliamentarians with charismatic species is a very good thing to do. Uh, and there's an excellent... Uh, Program of Species Champions that's uh, run by Wildlife Countryside Link in Scotland by the RSPB in England, uh, for which um, lots of MPs choose their favourite species and they go and speak about them in Parliament, and it's a really good way to sort of get MPs interested in what's in their patch uh-huh. and what sort of things might help a particular um, bird or animal. Uh, and, and yeah, it's a really good way to, to to bring to life some of the esoteric stuff about nature that we talk about. So I guess that's the best place to
0: start. Then what would be yours?
1: My favourite species. Yeah. I really, really like coots. Why? I like their feet. And I like their grumpy attitude. They're like little dinosaur birds That's a, uh, with, with that, that hard white nose and the mm-hmm. sort of a attitude of a raptor in the body <laughs> of a, a tiny little squeaky bird. There is,
0: there is something I love about birds, which is you can always... You can still see the dinosaurs in them, whether it's a, a heron looking like a pterodactyl. Yeah. Like we... I love the fact that basically everyone now completely agrees that dinosaurs are birds and yeah. birds are dinosaurs. And that I get such a thrill out of that. Absolutely. Um, I've just been on the west coast of America and when you see those pelicans come down across the waterfront and it's just, that's, that's a dinosaur and it's going to kill me. <laughs> um, so obviously birds feature quite highly. If you're talking about water rails back in Birmingham and yeah. we're talking about squawking at ministers already, Like, what, why birds? When did this passion first start?
1: I love birds. Um, I guess my grandfather had a big role to play in it, giving me my first binoculars. Uh, A very old shonky pair that was sat on his shelf. I probably was about to break them and he decided the best way out was to give them to me. Uh, And then I was very lucky to go to a school where, believe it or not, there was a Friday afternoon option of bird watching. Um, And I was the only boy on the bird
0: watching option for some time. Okay, is that why you joined? (laughs) Because <laughs> uh, I was on the netball team and I can't <laughs> say it was because I was particularly interested in netball Well the way I phrased it makes
1: it sound more interesting for a teenage boy than in fact it was given that it was a boys school uh, uh, So um, it was me and a brilliant teacher called John Porter who was used to be a wildlife ranger and became a, a biology teacher uh-huh. uh, and he inspired a little gang of us really to get into nature um, He was a brilliant birder and a thoroughly fantastic
0: individual How old were you?
1: Um, probably 16, I guess, at that stage. Okay.
0: And is this still something you're passionate about? I mean, you've obviously worked for, we'll talk about it a bit in more depth later, but the RSPB and the, uh, WWT. Is this something that still drives you now? Do you find time to get out? Like having just described your introduction, I'm surprised that you have any <laughs> spare time whatsoever. Well, it's the, the antidote for that bit of life. So uh, getting out and about in
1: Oxfordshire, where I live, is, is uh, wonderful. And we are very lucky to you know, have regular kites flying over the house these days, which is something you wouldn't have seen when I was a boy.
0: I, I just went up to Oxfordshire to interview a novelist. And that drive, heading up um, just on the outskirts of Buckinghamshire up towards Oxford... I- the, the number of red kites that you get flying over the top of you mm. is like nothing else it's beautiful isn't it yeah and the the population's huge we were filming an episode of Endeavour out there the Morse uh, prequel mm. and every day you'd go out and you'd see them hovering above unit base sort of waiting to see if everyone finished eating their lunch that day <laughs> you know they're just incredible birds yeah so what what, what uh, if you were born in Birmingham how long were you there for where did you go to school tell me a bit more about that
1: Went to school in Edgebaston in Birmingham, so there was this uh, lovely reservoir by a golf course, right by school. So, okay. uh, off we'd Potter to count well ruddy ducks, as it happens. <laughs> you can't do that anymore since um, they're an invasive species, so they're all dead now. Have we killed
0: off the ruddy ducks?
1: We have, because they were unfortunately. Um, meaning the demise of the white-fronted ducks so they were interbreeding and it was uh, causing all sorts of problems. So. There is
0: an article I was reading about the Americans killing off a species of owl the other day to protect another species of owl. It's an interesting tranche of conservation which prioritises species as a result of where they came from. Mm-hmm. And in a world where we talk about immigration quite a lot, it's interesting that the parallels in terms of human movement are, you can draw to the animal world.
1: That's right, but I think the important distinction is where movements have happened naturally versus Mm -hmm. where movements have happened because of
0: people. So So were Ruddy's ornamentals that were brought in...
1: They were brought in, in fact, by, I think, by Sir Peter Scott, the brilliant founder of the Wildfowl and Wetlands Trust, was a bit of a collector. Ooh, that's (laughs) Uh, exciting! But everybody did it at that stage. There are stories of, you know, uh, some of the mightiest uh, and greatest naturalists of those days coming in with birds under their coats Mm -hmm. (laughs) back in to bring them to collections. And it was a great way to reach out to people and uh, show people the wonders of nature. But now we understand that doing that can be very bad for your uh, native ecosystems. So it's good to, to distinguish between those that we've been responsible for versus ones where the range of a bird or, yeah. or another animal is increasing naturally. So when we're seeing new uh, species taking hold on the south coast, for example, I don't think anybody would uh, blink an eye at that. Sure, And it also depends on what kind of species you're talking about too. So think about the, the rats and the mice that gobble up the seabirds on some of our islands where the RSPB is doing... Necessary, but really horrid work for a naturalist yeah. clearing those away because they're just threatening uh, some amazing sea life. Uh, but people are more likely to accept it when it's a when it's a rat oh, sure. uh, than when it's a, a beautiful bird in its own right.
0: Are there any particular species that have recently become extant, extant on our shores that you're particularly excited about? I was talking to um, Sir John Lawton about the the cranes that were coming in on the yeah. on the northeast coast of the country, and it's amazing. I follow a Twitter feed that tells me when a particular rare bird has been sighted somewhere and whether it's a... I think a bee eater was particularly exciting yeah. so recently in this, in this
1: country. I mean, bee eaters here, it's, I guess you get a blow over every now and then. Uh, I don't think they're going to set up shop too much anytime soon. Although I think Cenex is one of those companies that does nature after minerals. I think they had bee eaters trying to read at one of their sites okay uh, i might have just completely made, made that, that up. up but um well whether true or not that's fascinating <laughs> and it's really good where where companies like that can be uh, working in partnership with with ngos to um sort of make good on any effects they've had on the natural environment so mm-hmm. the nature after minerals program is a really uh Good one for that. But what am I excited about? I still can't believe when I'm seeing egrets all over the place. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, that sort of shock of white uh, uh, as they as they
0: lift off is still stunning and amazing, and makes me makes me jump every time you see them. So, Edgebaston was where you were growing up. School mm-hmm. in the local area, or did you go away to school? Uh, school was in Edgebaston. I, I was from north of Birmingham, and my mum's still still there
1: now. And then went off to university. Eight or nine years at university.
0: Okay. Um, When you were studying, you weren't studying environmental sciences, you weren't doing zoology, you were doing political...
1: History, I started off with, because I liked knights in uh, (laughs) armour. And uh, had lovely times, but nobody had warned me that uh, you need to think about what comes next. So I stayed on and did a PhD Uh in the design of carbon emissions trading markets. uh,
0: Carbon trading is something that I find fascinating. In this world of carbon footprints, which is a phrase that everyone's heard of in terms Mm -hmm. of long-haul flights and people wanting to pay off their debt to society through having a great time going to holidays in Florida, they go, well, I offset my carbon another way. It's a wonderful idea to financially mitigate your destruction of the planet. (laughs) But as far as I understand it, there are people that buy up this carbon but then don't end up doing anything with it. So the idea of a trade, you can probably, I'm paraphrasing my <laughs> sub-knowledge. Can you explain it a bit better? Like, Not give us your whole PhD. but No, like,
1: no. Uh, well, you're describing some of the worst of the world of carbon trading, mm-hmm. where uh, a few people make a lot of money and a lot of people have their consciences solved with very little environmental good. Sure. So particularly in those early days, you saw schemes where people were paying for trees um, in, in India or wherever that never got planted. And it was extremely sad. A good carbon trading scheme is one that has a strict cap mm-hmm. on the overall amount of emissions that can be uh, produced by any economy. Sure. And that cap goes down year by year. So it's a way of making sure that the overall uh, output from, from your region, your country, is controlled in a sensible way that creates a cost for emissions and allows the market to find the most efficient way to reduce those emissions. Okay. So in the EU... The cap and trade scheme sets an overall budget for emissions for big business, uh, for energy and sort of intensive industries. And that goes down a little bit every year to try to get to targets. Sure. In a good world, that cap would have been really, really strict uh, to create a high carbon price uh, Mm -hmm. and really drive emissions reductions. But unfortunately, as the big vested interests got their way, a lot of, allowances were given out for free, so you got absolutely shocking windfall profits for some big businesses. Uh-huh. And too many credits were given out, so the
0: price was very low. If the damage is done at the beginning, does that mean it can recover and become an effective programme? And that's just an incentive to get people doing it in the first instance? You've got it. Okay, That's what should happen. So... Okay. In some ways, that
1: initial payoff was sort of a bribe. It was a political bargain to get the big guys in order. Now the challenge for the EU and for others who are looking at carbon emissions trading is to uh, find ways to crank down that legal cap uh, and take out excess emissions if, say, you have an economic downturn Mm -hmm. uh, so that uh, the cap becomes binding. You have a lot of people who say, why are we doing that? It's all about tax. We should tax instead. But taxes are really hard to agree across borders, as you can probably tell from all this Brexit malarkey. Mm -hmm. And a tax doesn't give you an unbustable cap, which is what cap and trade should give. So I'm not like a, I'm not an evangelist for cap and trade as opposed to other things. But I do think that if you design it well, then it can be a really powerful solution.
0: So this is what you're doing at university. How does someone doing that go back to focusing on birds? Were you, what happens next? (laughs) Well, the
1: Climate Change Act um, started to make a difference. This and is an
0: act that was uh, created in 19... eight. Two thousand eight. Oh, okay.
1: Yeah. So that was UK law, and it was world-leading law to set emissions reduction targets mm-hmm. for the uh, for our economy. And that was a massive and bold step to say that we're going to possibly compromise our um, economic development to reduce Protection. our emissions. Yeah. As it turned out, we did nothing of the sort and we boosted our economy and have a wonderful green economy now.
0: Did people follow suit as well with it proving to be successful?
1: They did. It was world leading and and lots of others have emulated since. But I felt I felt then that um, climate being the sort of urgent and overt and most public problem. Uh, We'd we'd taken a great step, but nature and the natural environment were in some ways the forgotten issues at that point. Sure. Uh, And things have changed a little bit since. But um, for me, building something of that strong legal framework to look after nature in the way that we've done it for climate still needs to be stronger, but we've started. Sure. That's why nature needs to look into.
0: So, so hang on. So, when did you start getting involved in that directly? What What's the path from university through your eight years in further education into working on behalf of the environmental sector? I
1: should fess up something that I don't normally mention. Please do. I went to drama school for a year and did had you? fun there. <laughs> yes, I'm only saying that because obviously, where did you go? Um, you wouldn't even have heard of it. It's sadly closed now. It was the London Academy of Performing Arts. Okay. Um, uh, It was over in Bayswater. uh, How'd it go? uh, It was was wonderful. I loved everything. Did you do animal
0: studies? Did you have to study and then pretend to be an ostrich or (laughs) something like
1: that? (laughs) There were things like that. I remember, yes, there were some kestrel impressions. Everything's about pretending to be a bird. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Uh, We were doing uh, uh, some things about poetry and the uh, wind hover was one of the options. So that clearly had to be... Necessitated a certain
0: uh, amount of screeching. Exactly. Um, The kestrel's my favourite bird, by the way. Is it? Yeah. Well, good choice. That was what I'd go for if I was having to join the parliamentary bird scheme.
1: (laughs) Well, maybe we we should have outreach for... uh uh, for actors and public figures,
0: who oh, knows? don't give them more output. Like they really <laughs> say enough as it is.
1: <laughs> well, we'll see. I might tempt you with a kestrel impression at some point. In fact, I should t- let's let's switch roles for a second. Oh, David, God. can you do a kestrel impression for the listeners?
0: I've never tried, and I'm. I, if I could have five minutes, I'll tell you what. If people keep listening to the end of this episode, I'll do an impression of kestrel. <laughs> that okay, sounds.
1: that's a deal for everybody. Made now.
0: That's my acting career gone down there.
1: Uh, but anyway, that <laughs> so was a year a, at drums. That was a bit of fun. Um, and then i took the civil service exams uh, so i went off to uh, to be on the civil service fast stream in the parliamentary service so okay. i was a clerk for a while working with the energy and climate change committee and then the home affairs committee
0: did you choose those placements is that definitely the avenue you wanted to go down i presume with your phd in in carbon trading that that would be obviously the sector you'd sort of drift into
1: exactly and then you don't have full control of where you go and when i was moved to home affairs i sort of looked at what I wanted to do with my years. I remember very vividly one of the ancient wise clerks appearing in a doorway, welcome, welcome Richard, we hope you'll be with us for life. Uh, That that made me question really was, uh, uh, was looking after the nuts and bolts of parliamentary process what I wanted to be doing forever Mm -hmm. Uh, and uh, um, I thought about it carefully and thought no the environment thing is the challenge of our generation really and uh, it's the one that matters most to me and I want to do some good so off I went to to a a much more junior but thoroughly uh, fulfilling post at the RSPB.
0: So how long were you at the RSPB for and what were you doing for them?
1: Two years as their parliamentary programme manager.
0: Okay what does that mean?
1: Uh, That's a good question. I asked that on my first day and nobody really ever answered it. So (laughs) I interpreted it to mean thinking about policy and telling people about it.
0: In those two years, what did you achieve that you are particularly proud of?
1: Well, that was sort of the start of a campaign that's um, carried on right to this moment. So uh, I felt at the RSPB like we spent a long time thinking about what shouldn't happen, fighting against particular environmental outrages and saying where things were going wrong rather than setting a positive agenda. And uh, a couple of excellent managers, uh, the brilliant Martin Harper at the RSPB and James Robinson, who's now at WWT, Mm -hmm. gave me some leeway to work with a couple of great folk at the wildlife trusts, which was uh, in itself a brave thing to do, they don't often team up, sure. um, Stephen Trotter and Paul Wilkinson. And together we sort of dreamt up this idea for a nature and Wellbeing act, we called it then, which essentially did four things. It said you have to have legally binding targets for nature, you have to have money to get you there, you have to map out where nature is looking good and where it needs some help, mm-hmm. Uh, And fourthly, you need to have a way of giving everybody equitable access to nature. And we dreamt up this little package. Sure. Um, My colleagues, Paul McNamee and Rose Dickinson, uh, were sat in the pub with me down on Petit France, uh, sort of writing away at what the clauses should look like. Uh And that was for us the start of a campaign for nature legislation to sort of match and emulate the climate legislation that I think has led us in some ways to the point we've got, arrived got at to with this the Environment week with the Environment Bill.
0: Bill. So uh, how many charities and NGOs sorry, uh, were involved in that sort of link up at that time? Just two. Just the two of you. Just RSPB RPB and the, the Wildlife, Wildlife Trust. Trust. OK. Is this, I mean, did that? where did that go to? Did that morph into the Environment Bill that we're now looking at? Or is it something that went off in its own trajectory and has become something else still? It had a a slow
1: evolution um, through the help of some really excellent parliamentarians. So there aren't many on the benches of the House of Commons who really believe in nature, but there are a few, and they've been consistent champions. So people on all sides helped us with the Nature Bill. I remember now Lord Sir John Randall, Mm -hmm. who's a Conservative Uh, introduced our nature bill as a private members bill, which is a way for a backbencher to bring in legislation. Um, The Lib Dems included it in their manifesto in 2015 uh, and uh, some Labour champions too, like Mary Cray, who was the chair of the uh, Environmental Audit Committee. Those guys kept that idea alive and kept bringing it back in Parliament. But the thing that really gave the opportunity for, for us to go further strangely, was the environmental fight back when on the back of leaving the European Union. Sure. So leaving the EU is a massive risk for nature. Let's not beat about the bush. It could be terrible. But we were able, through the brilliant uh, teamwork of Greener UK, which is an alliance of uh, green organisations and Wildlife and Countryside Link and others, to force an amendment in the EU Withdrawal Act that required the government to bring in new environmental law and that became a sort of Trojan horse Mm -hmm. for bringing in all these things we knew for years we needed anyway. So on the back of, of replacing those things that we have in the EU, like the new environmental watchdog and sure. principles... Well, a
0: lot of people are scared that through leaving the EU, which we may have done by the time we've released this episode, and or we may not have done, or yes. who <laughs> knows what will happen, but a lot of people were scared that all of those regulations and legislations that were put into place on an EU scale would evaporate overnight. Exactly. And there's still a risk that lots will be
1: lost. Sure. But we, we fought for this uh, bill to... to replace some of the institutions that were lost Mm -hmm. and we snuck in there some of the things that we knew we needed for nature anyway uh, like this prospect of legally binding targets.
0: So before we get on to the environment Bill the question I have is is why are politicians not particularly interested in the natural world? If you're saying you had to sneak it in, if you're (laughs) saying there are a few people with that caring, one has an idea that the argument, I guess, could be their constituents don 't apparently care, so therefore they don't represent those views that they don 't care about in Parliament, or is it something more selfish and bigoted, or like, why because because nature's wonderful <laughs>
1: yes, I think the whole system is stacked against nature in some ways, so nature is uh, and the environment is a long term issue, and our political system is still very short termist mm-hmm. And that's why, again, you need to set long-term things to sort of lock it in in law. Sure. Um, and when it comes down to it, we, we measure growth in, in ways that look at uh, bucks and um, uh, GDP, not in terms of, of the prosperity and... Uh, Biodiversity. Uh, or, exactly. Or
0: even cathartic well-being as a, a direct association to living a life with nature as a, as a friend and partner.
1: And all of us instinctively know that there's more to life than uh, your bank balance,
0: but for some reason, podcasts, for example, podcasts, yeah, they're they're pretty up there.
1: It could be a well-being measure uh, in <laughs> the next round of SDGs. Uh, Please, uh, don't. podcast prosperity. Uh, we'll see.
0: Um, so that's RSPB. So we we'll, we're, we're getting closer to the environmental bill. Um, RSPB. You were there for two years, and then you went straight to the Wildlife and Wetland Trust.
1: Wildlife and Wetland Trust, well, yeah,
0: yeah. Um, were you based in Barnes, or
1: um, notionally no, in Slimbridge, okay. which is their HQ um, down on the Severn Estuary? Do you visit; it's very lovely. I've
0: never been. Um, I, I, despite living down in St Margaret's, just past Richmond, and going past the Barnes Wetland Centre like almost daily for a while, I lived there for three years. I, kn- I hadn't been until about a year and a half ago. Oh. It's brilliant. It is, isn't it? It's And it's right there in the centre of London. And it's just there. It's huge. And, yeah. it's just, it, and I don't quite understand how it got protected. It's like it's one of the a huge lump in the Thames. And yeah, it, yeah it's there. It was um,
1: a Thames water site. Uh, and I think Barclay Homes teamed up with them to uh, help renovate the site. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, yeah, it turned from old reservoir into... Oasis of wonderfulness in the middle of London,
0: and the birds just came.
1: Uh, there was a lot of sort of amazing uh, hydrological landscaping that went on to make the water work, and I think that you know the water levels are carefully controlled, and, uh, and there was obviously some planting and what have you. But do you remember that RSPB advert for uh, for the Nature's Home campaign? They had this Gandalf like voice know. that says, "If you build it."
0: They will come (laughs) across between Lord of the Rings and uh, Field of Dreams.
1: (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Uh, And and it kind of was true. The birds found their way back. Uh, And it's amazing, particularly for wetlands, how quickly those habitats restore themselves. We often talk about trees as one of the habitats that needs to be increased really quickly for climate change. But actually, wetlands are one of the habitats that establish themselves really quickly and really well for biodiversity and for carbon
0: yeah one of the one of the things i 've always done is if there's a wetland centre and I'm away they're the best place to go and see some natural wildfowl and But the bird's population they just attract our, our winged friends which is which is
1: great and they're great for bringing politicians around because you can't be on your high horse when you are ankle deep in in sloopy slurpy <laughs> strange sounding mud. So how long were you with the WWT? I think that was two years as well.
0: Okay. Do um, you have a sticking problem?
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, don't say that. I've just moved jobs. They'll <laughs> come off.
0: No, just this is the way it worked out. The moments came. So were you working with parliamentary stuff there as well? What was your role?
1: Yeah, so I was called head of government affairs then. Uh, for me, though, the main thing about any sort of uh, political role is is policy. Mm-hmm. I think the only way that you really can be a good advocate is to figure out what the problem is and tell people what the answer is. Sure. So, uh, so I spent most of my time tip-tapping away looking at uh, uh, law and policy and thinking how to change it. So
0: at what point did you start advising uh, the Secretary of State for DEFRA?
1: Well he came to one of those mud slurpy sites that the WWT uh, had uh, uh-huh. down Steart Marshes uh, which is a sort of managed realignment where we let the sea in to uh, help help flood defence. Uh, and Martin uh, Spray, who's the chief exec at WWT, had let me carry on doing my environment bill work there and we lobbied uh, Michael Gove about an environment bill.
0: What year are we talking here? This is...
1: 2017? OK. Um, and he sort of said, well, if you believe it come and help us do it. Uh, And... uh, Was that scary? It was terrifying. Uh, And I'd never imagined myself doing that sort of job. I had to do some serious soul-searching to think whether I wanted to go on the inside like that. But, you know, if you spend lots of years banging at the door and asking for things from politicians, if a moment comes along Uh where you can actually go in and do some of them, I felt like it was the right thing to do to go and try and uh, make a difference.
0: Do you have to rely yourself... In terms of the party boundaries in those instances, or can you? No, it's not a question they ask. No,
1: so um, I was employed as a civil servant. Okay. So, in fact, avowedly non-political. Sure.
0: Okay. So, so what what is DEFRA?
1: DEFRA is the department for Environment, Food and Rural Affairs. It's the best department in all of government <laughs> uh, for that reason. Um, and yes, it looks after our uh, uh, rural economy, it looks after uh, nature, it looks after uh, all those all those good and wholesome things.
0: And how's it doing at the moment? Because I sort of see it as you've got loads of things seem to sort of be fractioning off. So you've got sort of natural England that's over one point. Is that that's not under DEFRA? That's... It is. um, DEFRA has loads and loads of
1: satellite bodies, non-departmental public bodies. Natural England is one of them, the Environment Agency is another. And actually they've been sort of pulled closer into DEFRA's ambit in recent years. So that's one of the things we're a bit worried about, that their independence and ability to hold government to account has been a bit compromised.
0: Sure. And so you were at DEFRA for... Two years ago. <laughs> so there's a theme Running coming through theme. here. So well, hey, let's ask the same question. What was the most impressive thing you achieved in those two years at DEFRA? Uh,
1: well, I I wouldn't say that I achieved anything. There was so a, you were an, part of a team?
0: Um, part of a team.
1: And there was an amazing uh, alliance of, um, well, I, I shan't say an alliance of civil servants and NGOs because the civil service is obviously independent. But there were lots of genius civil servants working on agriculture reform and the environment bill. Uh, and lots of great people outside working on those same things. And I believe that the changes that we have imagined for the way that we pay farmers to do environmentally good things Mm -hmm. could be fantastic for nature. And I also believe that although it needs a lot of fixing now that it's out in the world, the environment bill could be a splendid thing and a turning point in The way we do environmental law here
0: in the UK. Okay, well let's 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 look at it, not in huge depth because I'll be terrified. But there was something that you wrote down which I saw you write about the Night Poaching Act of 1828. Did I? Which was that when it was first enacted, the law. Oh yes, I do remember this. (laughs) Offences included a provision that after a third offence, a poacher could be liable to be transported beyond the seas for seven years, or to be imprisoned and kept to hard labour in a common jail or house of correction. Now, this is a piece of legislation that in certain aspects still stands today. And so a lot of what's in the Environment Bill is <laughs> about time. And that's 1828. So we're looking at a good 200, almost 200 years later. Yeah. We're looking at certain issues again in more depth. So it's it's long overdue, this thing. I, I mean, there, there's been plenty
1: since the Night Poaching Act. I sure. think I wrote that in an article for the Countryside Alliance mm-hmm. a couple of years ago uh, in an attempt... Sometimes conservationists don't get on very well with that uh, yes, yes. Uh, that interest group. But I believe there are uh, at least some places we can find common ground. Um, and yes, I think I was trying to illustrate the uh, the fact that sometimes there are pretty pretty strict penalties <laughs> for doing bad things to nature. I'm not in any way suggesting that we should be transporting people anymore.
0: But, no. Well, actually, one of the things that I was very aware of over the last two weeks, up until the Environment Bill was finally announced was the the, uh, Rights of Animals bill that was trying to be put through kept on getting shelved to get the Brexit debate finished. Mm. And so something that everyone's in agreement of, which is that uh, people who treat animals unfairly should serve longer prison sentences, Mm. is something that just never got put on the books Mm. because Brexit was deemed more important, even though this was something that had universal support within the House. Yeah. Like do you not start bashing your head at the door going like even the sensible stuff that we all agree with doesn't get done?
1: There have been some ridiculous delays over the last year or two because of Brexit business. Uh, I think there was a horrible position in the house where the government was afraid that any bill could be held hostage mm-hmm. to derail their plans. And so lots of really great ideas were left waiting and, uh, there are fantastic things in every policy area where progress really, really needs to be made. Where resources in the civil service, time in Parliament, and public attention have been neglected because of Brexit, sure. and I hope that that will soon come to an end.
0: A- animal sentencing is one, but there are there are dozens. Well, after we've left the studio in the hour we've been in here, who knows what state of the country will be in? We'll walk out into a post-apocalyptic central London. Um, so the environment bill. Let's. let's what's, what's the. What is the key remit of this bill that is now? Well, the Queen has said it. Therefore, it must be true. <laughs> there's a there's a fixie bit and a future bit.
1: So okay. the fixy bit is replacing those things we lose when we leave the European Union. So. <laughs> Uh, The EU has this fantastic ability to take governments to court if they break environmental law and then to wallop them with whacking fines. And that focuses the minds of government, really. Um, When we leave, if we leave, there would uh, be a hole in our environmental governance where the EU commission and courts have been. So the core of the Environment Bill is this proposal to have a new Office for Environmental Protection to take government to court and hold it to account. It's not bad. It needs to be a little bit more independent. And in my view, it needs to have the ability to not fine government, but do more. Actually force government to pay to make amends for any environmental harm that results from the breaking of environmental law.
0: Why would Parliament ever support something that could hold them to account?
1: Well, Parliament frequently does uh-huh. uh, support things that hold the government to account because there's that there's that difference between parliaments and governments and parliament is you know one of the institutions that does that and to be fair we do have a pretty good system of um highlighting government failures but this is a strong one sure and that's why it was so amazing to win that um amendment on the eu withdrawal act to force the government to replace that and i should just say thank you to uh, the wonderful Lord Krebs, who not only has been a scientific hero and champion for badgers over the years <laughs> and for fish, uh, but also was the one first to spearhead that amendment and then Oliver Letwin in the House of Commons. And it's because of that that we were able to get this um, big promise of a watchdog into Parliament.
0: So that's the fixy bit.
1: That's the fixy bit, along with a bit on, on environmental principles, so polluter pay, sustainable development. Those also need to be moved into UK law. And then there's there's other stuff that's more forward looking. And there are two really fantastic bits in there or bits with fantastic potential, in my view. The first is the promise of legally binding targets for air, water, waste and wildlife. Mm-hmm. We get some of those from Europe. But the Environment Bill could do that at a domestic level and set a really comprehensive package of targets that mean if we don't get where we're meant to be, finally turn around the state of nature,
0: government goes to court. One would imagine also that environments shift on not only a country-to-country basis, but on a county-to-county basis, and mm-hmm. then from uh, borough to borough. Like they, it's, You can imagine that an EU-level environmental policy, just because it's appropriate for the highlands of Scotland, doesn't necessarily mean it's appropriate for the far reaches of Eastern Europe. That's true. I mean, some of the big targets
1: do, do apply work, everywhere. So, so things like, I mean, the core targets should be for habitat extent, habitat quality, species abundance, and species diversity. And that's true everywhere. We want those things to be going up, not down. Simple as
0: that. Do we think that Defra will be in charge of implementing these new things, or how does what how does this work on the floor if, when this bill gets fleshed out? Mm. I mean, this is a hypothetical that like we don't know. This is. A headline has been shouted, the article is not written.
1: We've seen the, the text now. It was published yesterday. Okay.
0: So um,
1: there is a process for setting those uh, targets. It's going to take a while. They won't be set until 2023, I think, or okay. end of 2022. Um, and there'll be expert advice on what the targets should be. But it's not clear enough in the bill which areas targets should be set in, and it's not clear enough what progress government has to make to get to the long term targets. How does twenty
0: twenty three sit with trying to cap uh, global warming by one point five degrees centigrade?
1: Well, that's separate. So the climate targets we have are already in law. So so those that net zero promise for twenty fifty is still there. Okay. But nature, of course, would be part of that, yeah. and we've got to do a lot more. Trees and wetlands. There's no to, point to, putting a,
0: a plaster on one hole that you have in your hot air balloon <laughs> when there are several puncture wounds. Exactly. My metaphors are terrible today. I did one earlier about just the colour purple. It just, it, yeah, on another interview. Anyway, don't ever <laughs> trust my metaphors. Well, uh, I can tell everybody that you're illustrating your
1: metaphor with fingers <laughs> in uh, imaginary balloons all over the studio. My, here my hand so.
0: gestures are wasted in the medium of pod. <laughs> um,
1: uh, but you kind of took me to the second really exciting thing in the bill which is about local planning so mm-hmm. on this the wildlife trusts have been brilliant they point out that there's no point having all these highfalutin targets unless you know where the really great bits of nature are locally and the places where you need to improve it so there's also a bit in the bill that requires local plans local nature recovery strategies they're also a really good start but there's no duty to actually do anything with those strategies so that's another thing we've got to fix
0: um one of the other things that happened yesterday is that Jonathan Bartley, the co-leader of the Green Party, and George Monbiot, and various other people who were out protesting on behalf of Extinction Rebellion were arrested mm. um, because it has been deemed illegal for people to protest in central London about the environment. That's bonkers, right? I don't, I, I'm not
1: sure it's quite that stark. So mm-hmm. I, think, I think it's probably Public Order Act that sure. they used, which um, is about... I guess it's about things like blocking highways or whatever. So they haven't actually said it's illegal to protest uh, about the environment. Actually, a thing I was involved with quite a long time ago was... um trying to get the government to repeal the law that meant you had to have permission to protest outside Parliament. Okay. After the horrible terrorist attacks in the early 2000s, the government brought in the serious organised crime and police act. Mm-hmm. And that meant that you had to ask before you went and protested. Sure. And so there were people arrested for eating cake in Parliament Square. There was a cake with peace on and, and they got arrested. There was a person arrested for... It's a piece of cake, re- isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> they knew uh, what they were doing. They, they did, uh, yeah, yeah. And actually it was a good comical campaign, that because the brilliant Mark Thomas organised mass loan demonstrations <laughs> where he got people to, to apply en masse to uh, protest about completely different things. So you had people protesting for more modern art alongside people protesting down with terrible modern art. Uh, and brilliant. together they overwhelmed the police so much they had to get rid of this stupid law. But anyway, back to the point. Those people who are being arrested for extinction rebellion mm-hmm. are, uh, you know, really brave s- souls who are drawing light to tremendously serious matter that we all need to sure. get behind.
0: If if the main goal is the environment and conservation and protection and biodiversity, etc., etc., climate change, then they are one of the many tentacles of the. Of the conservation octopus. <laughs> Don't trust my it, metaphors. Well,
1: th- those fingers are in action again. In one moment they were <laughs> plugging
0: holes, now it's a tentacular
1: squid monster.
0: <laughs> so, um at the moment, you're working for a, a group that has many tentacles. Yeah. Um, do you believe that we're living in a world now where lots of different organizations need to come together? Like with what you were doing at the RSPB, is that the aim of the link at the moment? like what, do you, what is your current vocational agenda?
1: Yeah, I, I think that one of the bright sides of all the political turmoil lately has been how much organisations have been willing to set aside their individual agendas and, you know, fighting for membership and actually come together in pursuit of a common goal. And that's a, a wonderful thing. We need to work together much do more Do people closely. listen to
0: each other or is it bickering? I mean, it's hard to get people to coal, co-align for a common goal.
1: It is, and one of the things that's grieved me most over the years is where uh, bickering uh, gets in the way of pursuit of common aims. Uh, and, you know, uh, organisations have to think about their branding and that sort of thing, but ultimately we ought to be able to set those things aside to uh, to get the right
0: things done. So speaking about the future, w- when there is another election, mm. which could have happened whilst we were in this room... <laughs> um, You've decided to run for parliamentary office Mm. in Wantage. You have decided to stand for the Liberal Democrats. Mm. Why not the Green Party? Good question. Uh, I've actually
1: voted Green on a number of occasions over the years and think the the, the Greens are brilliant. Mm. Uh, But I guess I think the Liberal Democrats have a a, a wider offer in some ways. Uh, So they have policies that I believe in on a whole range of issues as well as the environment Uh, And I also like the the liberal focus on the future and uh, the fact that we can as a society grow and progress uh, in a way that some parts of the Green Party sort of tend to look to backwards rather than looking uh, forwards. But don't get me wrong. I I think the philosophy and uh, aims of the Green Party are fantastic. Mm-hmm. And I hope that there will be lots of chances to collaborate. Um, Caroline Lucas is a hero of mine.
0: As, as is mine. It's going to be an interesting election, that one for you, because you're up against Ed Vasey, who is one of the 21 candidates of the Conservative Party who lost the party whip, mm. upstanding against Brexit. There's a very strong Green Party candidate called Sue Thomas, I think, Sue Roberts. Roberts. That's it. So I mean, it's there's a lot of people seemingly coalescing for the same goals, one mm. could imagine. Um, so I guess we'll, we'll follow that when and if another election ever occurs. Yes. <laughs> so it's, 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 politics is always something that normally in these podcasts I try and sort of stay away from because it's a hard thing to discuss. I've very definitely chosen to talk to someone about politics <laughs> today, so it's fascinating. And yet we end up with the hypothetical and the possible and the future yeah. more often than not. So with that in mind, if you could guarantee one change for the future, probably within the environment bill, what would that change be? To set it in concrete that it would be an action almost immediately, and that policy would be the thing moving forward.
1: There, how fantastic am I allowed to be? I mean, go uh, be fantastic. I think if if but my dream policy would be to get the prices right on everything. So if you could wave a magic wand and say, we're actually going to factor in the environmental costs of the products you're buying and the services that you're procuring, then I think that would be a wonderful thing because it would suddenly allow everybody to make choices on the basis of you know, what harm they're doing to the world. Ethical choices. Exactly. And it would, uh, it would transform businesses because at the moment they get away with it for free. You yeah. can pour pesticides on the countryside. And, and no
0: one knows. No one knows. The carbon footprint uh, badge, which I think people are fighting for food labelling, is a really interesting one. Mm. Um, same with herbicides, pesticides, fungicides. Any kind of altercation to the farming product is interesting. Even when you see the GMO knowing that it's organic or not. Yeah. Or, like Nobody really knows what that means. <laughs> a form of packaging, pricing, as you say, would be a way to really help consumers and change the world very dramatically.
1: It would also because I, I think it would be better if if uh, the environmental choice were the easy choice. yeah, Because it's not for everybody, Not naturally not everybody thinks of the environment as their first thing and they want to be helped to yeah. make the right choice. So if it were that the uh, chocolate bar that has the soy in it that has come from deforested uh, bits of Amazonia cost ten times more yeah. than the ethically sourced one that, that's Comes been from good the farm for next the world. door, Exactly. Then it would be the green choice and the easy choice. But you know, I, if if you couldn't do that magic wand one then I always love a good ban. It would be good to ban some really bad stuff. Let's ban peat burning. Let's ban peat in compost. Let's let's get rid of a bunch of pesticides. Oh yeah, I could ban loads of things.
0: <laughs> the peat burning one's a fascinating one. Um, which I'm sure we could talk about for now. So much of this I could sort of stretch into something else, but the whole in short, peat traps a hell of a lot of CO two. It does. Like more than perhaps anything else. And we've been burning it and releasing that into the environment for the last few centuries, millennia, perhaps. Yeah. Um, but we're going to that. There are three questions that I ask everyone who comes on the podcast. Mm. First question is: If you could go for a walk anywhere in the world right now, where would it be?
1: I would probably walk back on that nature reserve where I started bird watching back in Birmingham back okay. in the day, uh, just because uh, I remember. I remember on my last day of school going down there and in a really. It's amazing how doing something for a podcast where there's nobody really listening lets mm-hmm. you say things. I said goodbye to the birds, and I remember that the, the feeling of sadness of sort of uh, looking up at those familiar trees and, uh, and things and uh, uh, realizing that I probably wouldn't be back there very much anymore. So I think I would, I would go back transport go. there.
0: Yeah. Well, if nothing else, I hope you do revisit it as a result of this.
1: I shall. Yeah. Um,
0: I was I was at a friend's house last night, and he was saying how through listening to the podcast it had made him want to revisit some of the natural habitats of his childhood so they're heading down to to Sussex to go and see an old uh, hill fort I think it was that he wants to go and see again which he hasn't seen for years and that's really lovely it is I mean, he's our only listener. (laughs) (laughs) My mum listens to it. Um, It's amazing how
1: so much is wrapped up in your childhood, isn't it? And for many people, the special habitats and stuff are the ones that they discovered when they were little.
0: Um, Second question, which is a new question. What is the most interesting thing you can tell me about your favourite species?
1: Oh, no, about coots. Um, Well, if you haven't looked at their feet, just go and look at them. They're so alien and flip-flappy. They're just... Well worth a watch. And Do they look
0: like a cross between the sort of, uh, a footprint, that sort of looks like ferns. I've always thought with the sort of many fronds that come yeah. off of it, and the way they sort of spread into the mud when you've seen them.
1: And of course, you get the,
0: the phrase "bald as a coot"
1: um, f- uh, from from coots that grow up with their little uh, red, splodgy heads, look, looking like they're bald. Uh, and that's uh, that's where you get "bald as yeah, a coot." Exactly.
0: Um, and final question: If you could bring any animal back from extinction, any sorry, any species back from extinction, not just restricted to animal, what would it be?
1: I think it would probably be one of those that's only just gone, just because the sadness of things like the Yangtze River dolphin, I think they're they're at least functionally extinct.
0: Literally, that's what Mark Carwardine said this morning. Is it really? That was one of his last chance to seize that he did with Douglas Adams, and that was his animal that he would bring back. No one's mentioned the Yangtze dolphin until... Today, and both of you just brought it up.
1: Well, maybe there's some sort of cosmic alignment that means that now a. Uh, if you a and Mark
0: little... come together, <laughs> you can bring them back. It, it's, they, they that's the... hubris, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I'm channeling the They're incredible. The heavens, yeah. um, we literally just spent the last 15 minutes talking just about dolphins. Really? <laughs> yeah. um, that's incredible. If people want to know more about you, where's the best way they can find that? You're on Twitter. I know I'm that on much. Twitter
1: at RS Benwell. And for wanted things, I have a website, www.richardbenwell.uk, I think it is.
0: Wonderful. Well, I hope that the election comes when you want it to come. Thank you. And I hope you do very well in said election, because it sounds like a lot of the policies that you want to bring forward will not only be good for the Liberal Democrats, but will also be good for the nation at large. Thank you. Very exciting. And I feel like we should end it on something... Silly and irreverent because we've been talking about environmental governmental policy, but I can't think of anything. To well, say. I can. Okay, great.
1: I can. You made a promise. Oh to no, us. <laughs> you no, did. I forgot about that. <laughs> yes, you did. I seem to remember that there was oh. something of a promise of uh, uh, D- David Lake's oh. National Theatre orchestral performance. It's quite a hard one, so I'll forgive you if. if...
0: I've got to do it, haven't I? This could be really embarrassing. All right. Can you do your one as well? Uh, it's like, it's, Can we make it a pact? I'll do my kestrel if you do your, was it a coot?
1: Yeah, yeah, coots are easier.
0: Okay, you do your coot then if you know what you're doing. They just go. <laughs> that's really good. Okay, here we go. <laughs> that's that's my kestrel. That's like, very good, how very was that? good,
1: very good, very that, good. Do beautiful. I get
0: the RSPB WWT seal of approval? Uh,
1: you, you do, you do. <laughs> um, um, it's a, yeah, very
0: good, very good. I can see the pity on your face. (laughs) Richard, thank you very much indeed. Much appreciated.
1: Thank you very much. Really enjoyed it. Thanks.
0: A massive thank you to the legend that is Richard Benwell. Once we had finished recording this interview, Richard told me that the Green Party and the Liberal Democrats were finalising the deal to join forces in many constituencies for this election, which is why he was uncharacteristically cagey in one of my final questions. But, needless to say, that all worked out wonderfully as part of the two parties' Unite to Remain initiative. So, if you live in the Wantage constituency and you wish to support a candidate with a United Green pro-Remain agenda, then vote for the liberal democut himself, Dr. Richard Benwell. In other news, the eagle-eared amongst you will have heard me mention Mark Carwardine at the tail end of this interview. If you already know who he is, then you'll know there's a banger of an interview looming in the not too distant Trees of Crow future. So keep your ears open for that one. Anyway, best of luck in this week's coming election, whoever you vote for, and I'll catch you on the flip side. Bye-bye. Baby, oh,